Hiberno Goethe, German-Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hiberno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. Willkommen, Falte, and welcome to the first official programme. My guest this time is mezzo-soprano singer Sharon Carty. Sharon has lived and worked in Germany, Austria and in Ireland, of course, but more of that anon. Sharon, I first want to ask you about being an opera singer. Um, when did you know that you were going to, or did you always know when you were uh, a little girl, did you know that you were going to be an opera singer? No, not at all. Um, I don't even know if I <laughs> don't know now if I have one. <laughs> um, no, I am one of actually very many opera singers who kind of have a, an, a, an unconventional route into it. Um, I, when I was a little girl, I was a big tomboy, so I was always out in the street playing football with the lads and stuff. And it was only through my secondary school music teacher, a lovely woman called Aideen Lane, who was also an opera singer herself. And so I guess she knew the ins and outs of the job um, and then she went into teaching after it. She kind of pulled me out in first year and said, you sing away in a manger at the Christmas concert in front of the whole school. And I couldn't understand. Like, I don't, you know, I played fiddle and piano and was always good at doing the desk cant and stuff in primary school. They always, I could kind of hold the tunes. So they used to give that to me. Um, but no one had ever made any sort of a comment about my actual singing voice being something that could have, I suppose, been been trained into being an opera singer. And yeah, so I sang away in a manger age 12 <laughs> in front of all of the school. And my mum taught in the school as well, so it was, oh, it was mortifying. Um, and I had no interest in, in singing. I didn't like the attention of, you know, kind of facing an audience. I played the piano and I loved that. Um, and she used to keep giving me like you know old L- like LPs and stuff of Janet Baker who's probably the greatest English mezzo-soprano of the last kind of hundred years and I remember you know from my junior cert listening to her I'm like oh god that's so wobbly I, d- I never want to sound like that <laughs> and now if someone says oh I heard a little you know element of Janet Baker and you're singing I'm like yes <laughs> uh, wobbly is that an official operatic term can it, if you hear that voice can you use that is that oh the vibrato yeah, yeah. Vibra- <laughs> vibrato is yeah it's 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 how much the sound wave vibrates I suppose and as an opera singer as a classically trained singer you have to um, aim for something in the middle that it's not too straight a tone because you know singing is a, a sound wave to be kind of technical about it so it obviously has a I just, I just want to get the inside track so I'll sound like I know what I'm talking about <laughs> if I say wobbly to opera singers will they be happy with that um, it's not a technical term <laughs> that I would advise you what, what about at home did you come from a home where there was lots of opera and um Lots of music. Um, lots of music, but not lots of opera. <laughs> the, the the predominant musical taste was my dad's um, country and western music. So uh, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, as we used to slag them, Wailing Jennings, um, which we oh, we hated it so much. My dad absolutely adored it. But no, but no classical music. So mm. I, none of us can figure out where that came from at all. And, and since you've become so educated in music, have you been more... Um have you got a better appreciation for t- 
Tammy Wynette and Wailing Jennings? Yeah, that, to be fair, yeah. Okay. I mean, um, I think Willie Nelson has an absolutely incredible voice. I don't think there's anyone else on the planet who sings like him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I would definitely say that I've kind of been more tolerant of <laughs> other, I, I other styles. Say, I thought you were going to say no, funny enough. <laughs> Is it easy to appreciate ordinary pop music or does it seem more trivial to you? That's a good question. I mean, which actually came into my head last week for some reason. Um, I mean, there's pop music and there's pop music. I think the pop music today is utter rubbish, if I'm honest. There's there's no kind of, there's no imagination in melodies. It's all just repetition of words and stuff. But when you look at things like, you know, Freddie Mercury and Queen and ABBA or the Beatles, which is pop music, and they didn't have auto-tune to kind of correct faults in in tuning so they had to kind of they had to be on top of their game musically and vocally um, so older pop music yeah it's amazing yeah. I, I wouldn't have an awful lot of time for the pop music that's written now apart from kind of bopping along in a disco like what about what about German what was your when was your first um, encounter with German my first encounter with German was actually in sixth class um, I'd forgotten that actually um, we had the opportunity to do an hour a week after school in sixth class so I did it then and then again in secondary school um, it all goes back to having wonderful teachers really when I was in first year we did we did all the subjects that were offered for junior search there was like 12 or 13 of them and then you chose going into secondary so I did French and German and I remember our absolutely beautiful teacher sister Mary Therese and she had she had been she was a nun and she had been to France and Germany and had and had worked over there and kind of taught over there in both countries and she was our teacher for both and she was so elegant and she loved the languages and she spoke she had like wonderful enunciation for both languages and I got I remember I got 85% in my summer exams in both languages because I kind of wanted some sort of like scientific way to ascertain which one I should go for and um I chatted with her about it and she said oh I think you probably would do better in German because I've always been quite logically minded and I like like understanding the. I mean there's lots of rules in German but that's kind of its beauty in another way because if you if you learn all of the the grammar tables and the prepositions and all that kind of stuff there's very few times when when there are exceptions to the rules so it's really clear whereas with like English or French there's silent letters and exceptions Mm, and yeah. yeah So did you learn um Dirty Dusty, Dandy Dusty? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it at the time actually, but like in hindsight when I went kind of when I when I was in Austria and Germany properly, then oh, I was so grateful that that was like seared into my brain because you could just call it up immediately and like see the grid in your head. And then the difficult thing became knowing what the what the gender of the yeah, noun yeah. is because that's <laughs> Just like oh god. What about? Do you remember at school? Was there were there German poems on, or was there any German writers, or did that? Appear? No, actually, I don't. Oh god, that's a good question. Um, I think it was mostly focused on the, the oral stuff. You know, talking about yourself and your family with the oral exam and kind of reading comprehension. Um, I don't have any. I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe I'll be proven wrong. I don't have any recollection of doing any any it's, literature. It's kind of it's kind of an unfair question, I suppose, because I was a German teacher and uh, and there wasn't any um, literature or poetry on. It was so I remember grammar. correctly. I'm and I was <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm killing the poor kids. They get they don't get a poem or they don't, they don't get anything. They just but, get grammar. It, and, it's uh, it's, it's tough, awful sad you know? that because there's so uh, like there's, German has such a um, a, a negative 
kind of reputation in some ways as being very black and white and square and logical and it not being an artistic language. My God, the, some of the poetry is just astonishingly beautiful. And like, you know, the way you can kind of put compound words together, you can make a word that means exactly what you wanted to say in German. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. just, it's amazing. Yeah, my daughter sometimes says to me, Krankenwagen, Krankenhaus, <laughs> isn't it great the way they're so descriptive? It just tells you yeah. what it is. Yeah. And yeah. ambulance doesn't tell you anything. And hospital doesn't yeah. really help you grasp what's no. happening. Yeah. Unless, well, I suppose, unless you studied Latin and you kind of go back to the, the, the roots of the words, which yeah. isn't, isn't done in schools anymore either. How's your Latin? We have a special <laughs> section coming up. On, on <laughs> um, because uh, I went to a girls' school that didn't offer Latin. <laughs> I'd have loved to study Latin, actually. It would have been amazing. Yeah, I think they were offering technical drawing and woodwork instead of Latin and Greek at my school. So we so we missed out there. Um, Pity. But you did go on to be a school teacher. I did. Not German. Not German. No, um, PE. So all I wanted to ever be from when I was about 11 or 12 was a PE teacher. I was just absolutely sports mad. Like, um, you know, be kind of doing hockey on a Monday and Wednesday, camogie on a Tuesday and a Thursday Friday evening I had off then there was a hockey match Saturday morning a camogie match Sunday morning and then there'd be cross country and athletics and stuff in the summer when the ga and the hockey season was over um, and I knew I didn't want to ever be in an office job I like I couldn't see myself kind of sitting at a computer in an office dealing with documents and stuff I'd have lost my mind I think and being a PE teacher then you know you get to be outdoors quite a lot and stuff appealed to me. And it was a natural flow from school to PE teacher to opera singer. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny. Some like people kind of go, oh God, well that's quite a change. But in hindsight, um, a lot of the, the psychology in terms of performance is the same. So there was stuff that we would have, you know, sports performance psychology that we would have studied in our actual degree is identical to dealing with anxiety and nerves and preparation and skill acquisition okay. and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you prepare for a football match, you learn your skills on your own, you practice with your team and you play in front of a crowd. Exact same thing with music. You do your prep, rehearse at your orchestra and then play your concert. OK. What about uh, being fit and, I mean, breathing? And uh, are opera singers supposed to be very fit for lung capacity? or And it, it, does that come into it? Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps. I I mean, everyone is different and every body is different. And, like, there's there's such a massive, massive variety of types of voices. Um, that, like, when you think of the fact that the, 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 the person's body itself is the instrument and that's a combination of the vocal cords and the, you know, core muscles and the resonance space and all that kind of stuff, that the, the spectrum... I, I don't think any opera singer would say that they need to be a marathon runner, but a basic level of fitness is important. And like I'd certainly notice um, now, like the last three months, I've had a bit bit of time on my hands, so I've been keeping fit to kind of keep my kind of headspace sane. And I've noticed my singing is so much easier with it because obviously your your instrument is in tune and is kind of flexible and fit so yeah it, it helps So you probably couldn't be a, a heavy smoker and be an opera singer There are singers who smoke and I like yeah tut tut I can't understand how <laughs> how they do that to their instrument when it's like the only one they have and you know you can't kind of get it replaced or cleaned or yeah yeah there are there are, like it wouldn't be the general thing but there are singers who smoke 
What about then when it comes to uh, performance? What's the are there differences between performing here in Ireland and performing in Germany? Yeah, I think the main difference with the two countries is that Germany has this several hundred year old tradition of opera houses being state funded. So, you know, at the time when there was all these different kind of kingdoms and each one had its own opera house and the 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 ruler in this one wanted to have a better court opera than the next one and it became a kind of a a point of of honor I guess so the, so that meant that every municipality had its own opera house and that and that that was patronized by the state as such and that became ingrained in in the I suppose the cultural and political fabric of society as as we got to today whereas here we don't have that so much um like say in in like from my experience having having been a member of a house in Frankfurt there was a fabulous sense of it almost been like a football team but like the public would look forward to seeing the young soprano who's just started like you know doing their first I don't know Barbarina in the Marriage Figaro and then go oh we oh god I wonder whether she'll be doing Susanna in two years and then oh maybe she'll you know kind of develop and stuff and there was a real kind of involvement and investment in the team of the town and the opera house um, and that's that's starting to happen here I think with, with Irish National Opera now which is really nice because the Irish audiences are getting used to seeing Irish singers on stage much more which is good And what about when it comes to the the clothing and the the dresses that, that go along with all this um, is, is that a really important part of it? Oh yeah I mean it's, oh, it's, 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 a, it's a lovely perk of, of the job for having concert wear um, obviously if you're in an opera production then there's a costume department in the company that they, they work out that and that's not necessarily always uh, a fancy evening dress but if for concerts then you're it's it's your responsibility to make sure that you look the part and that's that's good fun kind of shopping for those and um, kind of deciding what dress will suit what occasion and what space and colours and that kind of thing and the people who are organising this do they advise on this do they have a sense of how how classical they want you to look or how do they put that across to you for concerts do you mean yeah no that would usually be pretty much entirely up to the performer and there's a kind of a there's a kind of an unspoken dress code that I mean sometimes in a contract you will get gentlemen in tails and ladies in full evening dress and that will kind of specify it for the bigger concerts but um I mean, for maybe, you know, for an afternoon concert, you might not wear a huge meringue ball gown. It might be a bit much, um, like something a bit more demure might be appropriate, but, yeah. And it must need a lot of storage space then. This is a problem at the moment. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I have a, a rack of dresses in my spare bedroom, well, what will be my spare bedroom now, which, which need to go in a wardrobe, but the wardrobe has to be kitted out for it first. And you bring spare dresses? Yes, um, a lovely, lovely colleague who um, any any of the the opera community listening will know, Cara O'Sullivan, gave me wonderful advice several years ago to always have two dresses with you for a concert in case a zip goes or you don't realise you've put on a few extra pounds over Christmas or whatever. And she was right. I remember a concert in Germany where my lovely outfit that I had chosen, the zip went five minutes before I was due to go on stage so I was 
thanking my lucky stars that Cara O'Sullivan had insisted that I always bring a second dress. I'm going to be more observant now and look at the back and see if I can see safety <laughs> pins in the back of opera singers' dresses or something. There has been worse that have uh, happened on, with to colleagues. <laughs> when you're singing, is it important that you can speak German so that you can sing in German? I don't think it's important that you are fluent in the language that you're singing in, but it is imperative that you understand what you are singing when you are singing it. So part of the work of being a singer is when you when you find out that you're going to be singing a work, um, that the, the first kind of protocol would be that you'll take the text of the aria or the song and sit down and translate it. So that it makes sense that you understand the words that you're singing so you're not, you know, grinning like a maniac while you're singing about, you know, having lost your daughter or lover or or whatever. Um, But and it certainly helps with pronunciation and kind of style and stuff of the language if you have a little bit of experience in speaking it. But fluency isn't important, no. And then because some of the words from operas and and, um, and that those kind of songs, they come from from poets. They were written as poetry first. Yeah. So have you... Do you enjoy the poetry as a standalone? Oh, I do. Um, I mean, that's one of the, the amazing things about... So in in classical singing, there's three kind of main strands. There's opera, so costumes, you know, orchestra, stage, a story from start to finish. There's oratorio, which is something like Handel's Messiah or Bach Weihnachts Oratorium or um, anything that has a sacred, sacred text basis. And then there's leader or song repertoire. And that is identified by it being the text from a poem uh, and the poet is known to us and it's usually with piano and singer and that the composer then sets that text to music and the piano is a massively important part of their, the piano is an equal partner whereas with opera the orchestra can sometimes be an accompaniment to support the singer whereas with song recital stuff um, the, the piano and singer are, are viewed as being 50-50 equal there's a, a wonderful Schubert song called Gretchen am Spinnrad, so Gretel at the Spinning Wheel. And the the piano accompaniment, if you listen to it, mimics the the spinning wheel turning and, and there's a there's a pedal note that keeps repeating, which is, you know, represents her pressing the pedal with her foot, and then there's the right hand has this kind of motif that that uh mimics the wheel and it's just like the perfect kind of synthesis of text and music and you know, then them being greater than the sum of their parts. So, and um, do you, do you have a poem that you might read for us? Yeah, I have. Um, so, I recently recorded a CD of Schubert songs um, with Jonathan Ware who, on, at the piano, who was wonderful. And I think our favourite song from that is called Der Winterabend, which is from a poem called simply Winterabend. And it's from Carl Gottfried Ritter von Leitner, who is a really fabulous poet, if any of you want to um, explore some German poetry. Yeah, I might just start at the beginning and read a little bit. And see. Yeah, give us a, a verse or two. Yeah, so, Winterabend. Es ist so still und heimlich um mich. Die Sonne ist unter, der Tag entwich. Wie schnell nun heran der Abend graut. Mir ist es recht, Sonst ist mir's zu laut. Jetzt aber ist's ruhig. Es hämmert kein Schmied, kein Klempner. Das Volk verlief und ist müd. Und selbst das nicht rassle der Wagenlauf, zog Decken der Schnee durch die Gassen auf. Wunderschön. Danke. 
but I suppose when you're when you're when you're kind of singing, you become more aware that uh, uh, some of that poetry was written by Goethe or great poets, but they had to actually work with a with a composer uh, to come up with opera, and uh, they didn't always get on, did they? No, I mean that's a, a, I suppose for our sensibilities today, it's it's kind of strange to think like that their socialising and their kind of cultural social circles would have would have comprised of mates sending each other texts to you know critique and stuff and oh what do you think about setting this one and oh have you got something that I can I can set music to um for example one of the songs on on that CD is absolutely beautiful it's called Viola and it's uh by Schober is the text and the the story is uh, it's really sad it's about this little violet who in the spring just before she 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 blooms a little bit too early and is all excited and the, the beginning of the poem describes her putting on her her blue dress and her green coat and her diamond dewdrops from the the rain and getting ready for her bride her bridegroom which is spring and then she suddenly realizes it's very cold and she runs off and is scared and alone and then the spring comes and all the other flowers and they realize then that she's not there and he sends the spring sends them all searching and Ultimately, you know, 13 minutes later, they, they find that's so like I, cr- I actually cried the first two times I like read through it and sang through it. It was just it's so affecting. Um, they find her at the end crumpled up in a little heap dead. And this was the, the, the relationship between Schober and and Schubert kind of soured. Uh, and a lot of people kind of say that, oh, that it was kind of quite poignant that the, the, the song was set to this text at around the, around the time that their relationship kind of soured and, yeah, I don't know, life imitating art, yeah. <laughs> I guess, to a certain degree. There's a kind of level, I suppose, with, with poetry and maybe with opera that people would consider a little bit uh, kind of elite or high culture, maybe unfortunately, or definitely unfortunately. But, I mean, when you're... Um, when you're in touch with the, the German culture, do you come across other elements of it? I mean, are you aware of uh, German film or German television or, or sports? Does that also creep into where you are? Yeah, I mean, um, sports maybe not so much, but one of the things I've been really, really grateful to have, you know, fluent German for the last couple of, well, I suppose last year, is this there's an amazing, amazing series called Dark on Netflix which is in German. I mean, there's, there's English subtitles and the odd time they speak so fast um, and not very deutlich that I've had to kind of put on the, sub, the subtitles just to be like, what did he say? Um, but I think it's, it's, all, it's always so, so much more satisfying to experience a piece of art in the language in which it was written. I mean, I'm all for translations and making things accessible, but if you can experience something in the language that it was written in because you know languages like words themselves have music in them and have have connotations that that that's what I think one of the wonderful things about language is that it it is kind of built in the culture that it is needed for like you know that that, that kind of cliche that the the Eskimos have 150 different words for snow where you know whereas that wouldn't be relevant in a in a sunny country um so it's so tied up with the the culture and the society as well that it's it's you you get much more of the in-depth meaning of it but yeah but dark is just if if you're into your sci-fi and weird time travel stuff it's really good so i've enjoyed watching that in german <laughs> yeah yeah it's um i wonder if it gives a real insight into into a little bit of german culture that you don't always get at because um there is something of the the darkness of it that i that i particularly enjoyed as well have you seen it yeah yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's just um I just thought it was so authentic and like the, 
the colours and the, the the production values are all yeah just you really kind of have the feeling of being in German kitchens and sitting rooms and like you know the family problems that, that we all kind of experience are universal I guess Coming back again um, just you were saying there I was thinking about a, a performance in a German opera house and a performance uh, here in Dublin what happens afterwards what's it like um, when when it's over do you go for drinks or do people go and celebrate or is, how does that work? I suppose it depends on where you are in the run of shows Um Usually for what's called a new production. So if the, the the show hasn't been done before, you'll have a period of up to six weeks. So six weeks would be the norm in Germany. Sometimes, depending on funding, it can be a little bit less um, elsewhere. But usually, say, if you have the luxury of having the six weeks, you'll do four weeks in the rehearsal room and then two weeks in the theatre and then the orchestra will come and, you'll rehe- and everything kind of gets kind of layered on, you know, wigs, costumes, makeup orchestra all that kind of stuff so and in again it depends so if you're in what's called a festus mitglied like a a fixed member of an ensemble in a German opera house you might have an opening night on I don't know Friday night and then you might have to also sing another performance the next night so in that case obviously you wouldn't be going out celebrating but usually you'd go for like dinner afterwards like a late dinner because you won't have if the show starts at 7 or 8 o'clock you won't have eaten anything directly beforehand because singing and eating directly just you know you kind of stuff repeating on you can you, um, can you sing on a hangover I have never tried <laughs> I don't like mm, I don't think I'd want to <laughs> to be honest I doubt it would work because you like if if you're hungover then everything is dehydrated and the vocal cords are so delicate um. and they're so sensitive to moisture that if they're dried out then they can't vibrate and the little mucous membrane is kind of not fully there then you can do proper damage Okay Um, So when you're socialising then um, in Germany and in Ireland do you find that different? Um, Yeah I mean there's I suppose the pub culture here and there is is a bit different there's the like I I I did my initial study in in Austria in Vienna so that was my, my first kind of experience of I suppose German speaking place where you go and instead of you know going and being in a round with three or four people and you know kind of going to the bar with 20 or 30 quid and been like right I'll have one of these one of these one of these one of these um, that in in Germany and Austria you the, you know, the waiter comes and you say oh I'll have a, an Apfelwein or you know an Weisswein Schorle or whatever and then they make a note on their little settle and then at the end of the night they come back and you do that they, they go around the table and everyone pays exactly what they have ordered themselves and stuff. Um, so the two. So then, if one person decides to order around in the German way, then that kind of that's that can be kind of jarring because then if that's not reciprocated, then it's it, so, it shows up the cultural difference. So have you found yourself uh, very pleased after a performance that you bought everyone a drink and you got the first round and then no, nothing else happened? It was. Once or twice, yeah, like that's <laughs> that's not why you buy around. So. Um, do you have favourite uh, places where you would sing? I mean, are there opera houses or concert halls that are particularly special for you? Yeah, I mean, that's that's funny, actually, because somebody else asked me that question a couple of, couple of weeks ago in an interview. And um, I found it actually quite difficult to answer it because it's it's mostly... 
like it's mostly been my experience that when, when I like singing somewhere it's because the people who are organising the thing are lovely and that the whole experience is lovely because I suppose once you have a certain level of a decent acoustic and a decent piano or a de- you know kind of prof- the, the, the professional side of things from for the, the hour and a half or the two hours that you're on stage that's a kind of a, a little bubble and you know you do your mental prep and your your physical prep and your artistic prep and you go on stage and then everything else becomes invisible um, but I suppose here I, I love singing Galway I think Galway audiences are just always so like on your side they're just really really lovely and it's a it's a town that um, there's such a respect for the arts even if they're not you know if if people will kind of go Ash there's something on let's go like we'll yeah, support yeah. it there's there's such a brilliant sense of that in Galway um, it's quite a difference from the Frankfurt crowd cheering on their home team yeah. and, their, and their young <laughs> yeah. star yeah. but but as you say if the appreciation is there and the enthusiasm yeah what about um, places where some of the um, some of the composers that you would really admire had actually worked oh god is, is that a bit special yeah I mean I've been to to Leipzig uh, twice and been to the Thomaskirche as a Bach is my absolute like other uh, highlights to he is as close to divine as I could possibly imagine anyone ever coming to so going to see so he's buried in the, so he he was cantor of the Thomaskirche in in Leipzig and that's where he wrote many of his wonderful works for his choir and orchestra there and he's buried in the church and you can like literally stand and touch his grave and I'm I'm getting emotional now I got so emotional both times like it's just there's such a a sense of reverence and awe and just being in that church where such amazing music was written and performed and we have that legacy thanks to this one man who had a really difficult life. Like he had a rake of kids, you know, loads of them died. Um, you know, 16, 1700s were difficult uh, in terms of health and sanitation and all that kind of stuff. Um, and yet he wrote this absolutely incredible, incredible music. So yeah, so Thomas Kirchner in Leipzig is like like a pilgrimage. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and are there um, opera houses or maybe even are there roles that you would particularly want to uh, sing? Oh yeah, there's a list. To? Probably two recent ones that I did that were an absolute dream was we did a big tour of Gluck's, another German composer, um, Orfeo Eliuridice, which was very well received and we had a really beautiful kind of alternative take on it, which was really, really satisfying. Was that on the Abbey here? It wasn't in the Abbey. It was where was it on in Dublin? It was on in the Civic in Talla and the Theatre in Dunleary. Yeah. Um, I forgot what the name. Was, the Pavilion in Dunleary. And then a couple of years ago, we did a big concert performance of Ario Dante by Georg Friedrich Händel. Another, another, all Germans. <laughs> um, and that's, I mean, that's Ario Dante is an absolutely fantastic mezzo trouser role. That's just like. It's got, it's got all kind of the facets of human emotion in the role. So, yeah, those two would be kind of two recent ones that I absolutely loved. You sing a lot in German. Um, do you ever sing Oskwelge? Do you ever sing in Irish? I've actually it? never sung Oskwelge. Okay. There's a couple of folk songs that have a few couple of Um But no, sadly, no. Um, I know a friend of mine, Conor Hanratty, who's a, a fabulous theatre and opera director, is, uh, I think, has plans for... Uh, uh, 
an Irish version of one of the Greek plays which whose name has escaped me. So I'll be watching for that with interest. Um, and I know uh, colleagues several years ago in Galway, I think somewhere in Galway, did the marriage of Figaro, Osquilga, which I, I would have loved to see because there's so much humour in that. I think the Irish language would have been great crack for for that. Yeah, it's there should be more yeah. music drama in, in Irish. I presume there are some sounds that, that would cross over quite well from German to Irish. That um um, It's funny, actually. People kind of say... So uh, any of my kind of foreign colleagues, when they hear me speak, you know, if there's, if, if there's another Irish person there and you kind of start blabbing Oscar for, you know, but to show people, like, what Irish is. Because I always find it really funny that they don't understand that it's not just English with an Irish accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And they go, oh, it's really like Russian. I'm kind of always like what, but the the dark L's and the dark O's are quite quite um, they're quite similar to the, the m- much more similar actually to Rus- Russian pronunciation than than any other yeah. kind of singing language I guess. Maybe to wrap up a little bit to bring it back around again. After your years living in Germany and Austria, and after your exposure to lots and lots of uh, German music and stuff, do you feel a little bit uh, German? Do you feel as a part of you has become a bit Germanized? Yeah, absolutely. And like my friends will kind of slag me that I've gotten too German. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, like. How does, I, it, how does your German side manifest itself? I um, oh, just it's made me an awful lot more organised than I used to be, <laughs> which is a really, really, really good thing. <laughs> yeah, I think like. Because, like, does the thing about, you know, putting the, the, the verb at the end of the sentence when you've got split infinitives and stuff, that, like, German stops you just by, the, like, the, the actual denkweise, like, the, the way that you think. Um, it stops you being really super spontaneous in, in potentially a good way that you have to plan out what it is you want to say so you don't blurt out stuff. I always kind of think it's funny that, you know, that someone could be, like, a serial killer and that they're going to tell you that they're going to to kill you but you wouldn't actually know until the very end of the, the sentence um, but yeah and there's there's another kind of funny phenomenon that's that's happened in the last couple of years which I absolutely love when if I have I have lots of good friends who are German um, and I you know would kind of FaceTime and my singing teacher actually is a an Irish mezzo-soprano Alison Browner who has lived in Germany for the past 30 odd years and you know, she had her family there and had a big career in Europe um, but I mean, she's fluent in German as well. But when I speak with her or with friends of mine who are have excellent English and are obviously German, that it's you can you can kind of switch between the two languages in the same conversation. And if you find a word that's more passant, <laughs> appropriate in 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 the flow of what you're saying in one language, you can just you know pepper the the, the sentence with both languages, and it just because that that's I, I I know lots of people who are bilingual talk about that that you, you the word for something disappears you can see it in your head and you kind of go oh you know that like that 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 blue thing that with the wet stuff in it like a bottle of water yeah <laughs> that it, it the word disappears um so that kind of stops stops that and then you kind of get this lovely kind of tapestry of two languages that it's much more expressive than in either language on its own so i, lo- I actually love that yeah yeah i find sometimes if i'm going to do um an interview in um in one language and I'm preparing for it in another language I find it quite unnerving because I can't get I can't find all the words and yeah. stuff and sometimes um, if I'm chatting to a friend of mine who's an Irish speaker I'll get naturally and then we sit down to do the interview in English it's really disconcerting But uh, there's really interesting stuff actually written about because I've I read up a bit about this over the past couple of years that um, languages 
like are they're stored in different parts of your brain so it's not like you have like languages in one section you kind of like have the data bank for all the words like English is in one physical place German is in one physical place and they're totally distinct from each other like I, I, can't, I can't say my, what it, the number doesn't exist I don't have the number anymore but when I had my German phone number I had memorised it in German and I cannot still for the life of me say it in English I have to say it in German and write it down and then say it in English yeah yeah uh, um, 26, 47, 39 isn't that you read it the different ways the German number 27417 oh you're saying just numbers you're not yeah, reading I had, it yeah, yeah. No, no I had just numbers it was just yeah. the, the, the I had it memorised in German and I couldn't it could not say it in English yeah. like I had to translate it from German yeah, yeah. it's mad and I did say we were going to wrap up, but that was ages ago. So <laughs> just to wrap up, back again to, to, to singing and stuff. Um, if people weren't that familiar with opera, what, what would you recommend that would be something that they should listen to that would uh, be something that would be a really nice introduction? Oh, God, that's a really difficult question. I would say Mozart is usually a safe bet. It, de- it depends, actually, on what your kind of interest would you say to in, start with in, uh, Wagner's Ring to well, get into 16, see, 16 the, hours of, of Wagner or something? To see, get the you the thing is, maybe not 16 hours of Wagner, but the, like the overture to Tannhäuser is absolutely unbelievable. And I'm not a huge fan of Wagner mm. at all. But like, if you're Googling it on, on YouTube, there's Barenboim uh, recording of the, the Tannhäuser overture, which is just astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant recording. And much better than several of the other ones that would be kind of floating. And it's it's just a good example of how in the right in the hands of a right the, the you know, a good conduct a really excellent conductor and an excellent orchestra that a piece of music can be something completely different than if someone bo- makes it, you know, doesn't know what they're doing with it. It depends. I mean there is Mozart is usually a fairly safe bet because there is he is someone who captures the human condition and its you know flaws and charms in a in a really transparent and it's it's almost so simple but when you like analyze it then it's actually really <laughs> really difficult to kind of to 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 recreate that something like the marriage of figaro is wonderful it's there's there's kind of something for everyone there's humor in it and there's there's kind of marital strife and that kind of stuff some of the songs that you sing are they uh, Schubert songs uh, I was looking up YouTube and I was come across that uh, as a Ganymede Ganymede the, the, yeah. the Goethe poem that's, you sing that beautifully oh thank you yeah thanks uh, that's my recommendation oh very uh, good than yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay Sharon thanks very much thank you very much vielen Dank vielen Dank and mille buiches and gode mille machen and best of luck yeah Slánamish thanks